good for okay all right then good let's do this so we have this iceberg yes which I can't really see, but I'm trusting that it's a big iceberg with plenty of ice underneath. And I was, th you know, we've, we've called the Bible study out for years because we don't do the, you know, God is love thing so much. We do the, the other stuff. Because you get the God is love stuff at church, you know, all, all the time, every day. So I was thinking about this and I was thinking about that we've been going through the tabernacle and today's tabernacle is finally the uh, altar of incense. And remember this, you know, the Lord laid it out in a particular order. And he didn't just go in the shape of the, you know, he didn't start at one and work to the other. He sort of jumped around to whatever parts and pieces uh, apparently he thought were important. So the the uh, altar of incense is today until next week would be the last one, which was the water labor. So it's interesting. This is the, the not that, not that, the altar of incense sort of abuts the, veil that Medra was singing about and it has the table of showbread on one side and the uh, menorah on the other side and the bronze labors outside and the uh, water labors outside and all this stuff but I was thinking about this and it's like anybody who's come to this bible study or any bible study I've ever done pretty clearly and pretty soon understands that you know I sort of plant my flag at the table of showbread I want to know the word I want to know what it means you know, I want to get into it as much as possible. And most people are not interested in that. Then you've got the people that plant their flag over at the menorah. You know, they're all about the spirit. That's all they want to talk about, you know, the Holy Spirit. And to me, it all seems goofy, you know. They're walking down the street. Oh, my gosh, don't go in there. There's just a darkness on this. All right, maybe. I don't see. You know, I'm not wired that way. I don't know. And you have all these people, and they don't definitely don't want to hear about the word. They, it's all about the spirit. And then you've got the other people that plant their flag at the table of incense. And that's all they want to do is pray. And it's all there. They don't care what the, I mean, I'm sure, sure I shouldn't say it that way. They don't want to know really what all the words mean. And they're not even so much interested in, you know, all the ethereal spirit stuff. They only, all they want to do is pray. And you've read stories about these, you know, prayer warriors that they prayed 18 hours a day and, where their knees were on the wood floor, they've, you know, dug in all these things and, you know, worn themselves into the next floor below. And it's like, I don't get that either. You know, you've heard me pray. I'm a terrible prayer. I, what would you pray for for 18 hours? You know, I mean, I keep thinking in my mind, oh, if I had to pray for 18 hours, we're going to have a lot of repetition because, you know, but these guys, that's their life. So in that, in it, I was thinking about that because of the iceberg, you know, and we each plant our flag in a little spot. If that iceberg is the temple or the tabernacle or God or however you want to look at it, we can't do it all. You know, there, I don't know anybody that has flags in all the places. There are certain things that the Lord brings to us that that's what we're interested in. That's what we want to do. And for me, you know, it's the word. And for most people, it's not the word. But when we're talking about the temple, you've got all these boards in the temple, right? And we went through... You know, the wood boards, acacia wood covered in gold. They're set in these sockets of silver. Um, and that's what holds the tabernacle up. And as we read it in the Hebrew, the boards are described as um, children, as boys and girls, you know. And their arms are locked together. And these boards are set in silver, when silver is, of course, the metal of redemption. So the sockets of silver both go into the earth, you know, the world, and keep the children of God above the world. But 
if if we're the children, we're those boards. Our foundation is the redemption. And each board, I'm seeing this in my head, is that's the guy who's focused on prayer. And the next board is the guy who's focused on the word. And the next guy is the guy who's focused on the spirit. And, you know, and everybody has this, this thing that the Lord has put in them that interests them and drives them. And the temple's not complete unless all the boards are standing. And all the boards have to be interlocked. And that's the exact verbiage of the Hebrew is the arms of these children interlock. And that's what makes the tabernacle strong. So it, that's me up there, you know, up there on the top with my little flag, because I like to talk about the word. But you have to have everything. You have to have all these people. You know, if I didn't have all those people that, oh, don't go in there. There's darkness in there. You know, I'd be in there, right? You know, what would I know? And if I didn't have people praying for me 24 hours a day, I couldn't do any things I do. You know, I, I know when I call my wife, she says, how's your day's, yeah, day's going? Ah, uh, you know, not so good. Blew out my knee and crashed the car and really having a bad day. And then everything gets good. I know it's because she's praying, right? And it's nice to have all of that. And that's pretty much the tabernacle. That's, you know, that's the picture. That's why it's the blue and scarlet and red, and you know, or, uh, purple and all the things that we've talked about. Okay, so next week we'll cover really quickly the water labor, which is obvious. I mean, that's the place where you clean. You know, you get yourself clean and ready to present uh, yourself to the Lord. And it's like Nedra's uh, song about, you know, and, and I should mention the table of incense. You know, the incense obviously is prayer. And how do you get the incense to burn? Because the table has no device through which you burn the incense. You just make sure I'm and up. the way you do it yeah. is you take the coals from the bronze lake where you've sacrificed whatever it is you've sacrificed. So you come into the courtyard and the first thing you're confronted we with is we the should be able to get to have to sacrifice. And then from those coals, they go into the table of incense. That's what the incense is poured on. That's what causes the smoke to rise. And those are your prayers. Um, and it's right in front of the veil. And then, of course, when Yeshua was crucified on the cross, the veil was ripped. And everybody says, oh, we have access to the, you know, to the Holy of Holies. And that may be true, but in my warped mind, I'm thinking, that let the Lord out. You know, now he's everywhere. He's not, because that's where he lived, right? It was in this little 30 by 30 box. But now there's no no veil there, and he can get out. It's not... It's not, I mean, I'm sure it's because so we can have access to him, but he has access outside sure, as well. Chat. Okay. Um, I just want to read a couple of verses about the, the incense and whatnot. Psalm 141, verses 1 and 2. It says, uh, Jehovah, I cry unto thee and make haste to me. Give ear unto my voice when I cry unto thee. Let my prayer be set before thee as incense, and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Revelation 8, starting in verse 3, it says, And another angel came and stood at the altar, having a golden censer. And there was given to him much incense, that he should offer it to be with the prayers of the saints, and the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense which came out of the prayers of the saints ascended up before God out of the angel's hands. So incense is always that picture of prayer. It's Proverbs 29, 
Uh, Yahweh is far from the wicked, but he heareth the prayers of the righteous. In Proverbs 28, 9, And he that turneth his ear from hearing the Torah, even his prayers shall be an abomination. So next week, if we're still here and haven't been raptured, um, the water laver. And I've decided since we could be raptured. In you have your audio on here. Yeah, on. right. Yeah, I'm way up. Found in Psalm 24, starting in verse 3. It says, Who shall ascend unto the hill of the Lord, or who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully. He shall receive the blessing from the Lord and the righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of them that seek him, that seek thy face, O Jacob. Selah. So who indeed is the guy that shall uh, ascend to the hill of the Lord? He's this guy who has not lifted up his soul to vanity. And that word is shav in Hebrew. And it means, this is just classic. It means a useless moral ruin. So if you have not lifted up your soul to this useless moral ruin or sworn deceitfully, which is Shabbat Mimah, which means a complete fraud or complete deceitful fraud. So the ones with the clean hand and the pure heart are those who have not embraced the useless moral ruin and the utter fraud and deception of the world. He's the guy that shall ascend unto the hill of Yahweh. So you look around the world today and things are spinning. We live up here in this little happy valley. Nothing ever happens up here. So we're a little uh, detached from the realities of the rest of the country and the world. But if you, and I don't necessarily suggest you do this, but if you start getting into some of the stuff that's going on, it will just fry your bacon. It is, I mean, it's unbelievable. It is, you never thought these things would happen. So I'm looking at a few of these things. And, and last week we talked about, it's, you don't have this, Jordan. Proverbs 17, 15, he that justifies the wicked and he that condemn the just are both an abomination to the Lord. So you've got this idea of you can't be a follower of the Lord. You can't be that guy with the clean hands and the pure heart going to ascend the hill of the Lord if you're justifying the wicked. And that should seem obvious, but it's apparently not. Because there are so many big churches that are just throwing the word of the Lord out and just bowing to the gods of this world. We have to, oh, we have to do, we have to support Black Lives Matter and we're taking money from missionaries and we're giving it to them. And I mean, it's just crazy. How, how in the world did this even happen? And you start to look at, um, and I've mentioned this before, websites like uh, the Christian left. There's no such thing. You can't do that. You can't, if you justify the wicked, you're not on your way up the hill to the Lord. You are an abomination to the Lord. Kind of, yes, yeah, sort of an oxymoron. You cannot, but yet it's like 30 or 50% of the people that like to think that they're Christians and on the narrow path support these whacked out Democrat. And, you know, God is not a political party. Uh, when he takes over, it's going to be a theocracy. He's in charge, and that's that. And he's benevolent. And there is no, there are no benevolent leaders in either party. But you can't, I mean, it's, 
If you think you're a Christian and if you think you are going to see the Lord and you align yourselves with people that support abortion and support gay rights and support literally the destruction of the United States is, is where they're going. There's, you're the guy who's lifted up your soul to this deceitfulness, who has fallen victim or, and it's not even fallen victim. You've willingly done this. You have supported on purpose these utter frauds and deceptions. And whether it's because you've been deceived and you really think that's right, or, I mean, I, I, I can't even imagine. I like to give them a little benefit of the doubt and think they really are just, I mean, they have their head in a bucket and they're not looking outside and really they're good people. And I know, I mean, I know a lot of people who call themselves Christians and they're just radical left-wingers. And I know the people, I know their heart. I mean, I seem to know their heart. It's just, how do you get there? And that's what we're seeing. We're seeing in this world, it's, you know, because the beast is coming, yeah, the dis- and he's going to bring this deception that if it were possible, is even going to uh, uh, confuse the elect, right? We would fall victim to it. But the foundations have been laid. They've been laid for a long time. And it's spinning up so fast. It's, uh, I never thought I would see this. I mean, I have always thought, oh, yeah, we'll be raptured, you know, probably in our lifetime. And then all of a sudden, it's like, it's here. You know, this is, this is the real deal. This could happen. And so when I say if we, if next week we get to the water labor, I mean, I'm halfway not kidding because it could happen. There's nothing else. And the world is, uh, anyway, you kind of get where I'm going there. Um, so a lot of these churches are just abandoning. And, and why is it? You know, how can a pastor or a church not even protest, not even talk about this though. They don't want to talk about the end times. They don't want to talk about, you know, anything. Social justice is okay, but we can't talk about anything real. You know, we can't talk about the deception that's happening and the deceit that's happening and all the lies. The fact that, you know, every news station, Facebook, Twitter, every search engine is, is giving you crap. It's they're blocking any truth and they're giving you garbage. And there are people, I guess, who just buy into it. And so I've been saying for the last 30 some odd years, what you people should do is now that you know the truth is what are you going to do with it? How are you going to, you know, what are you going to do with the people that you run into? And we think of that as being, okay, well, the unsaved, the, you know, the checker at the store that doesn't know the Lord or the guy you work with that doesn't know the Lord or whatever it is. But I'm not even thinking about them. I'm thinking about the people who sit next to you in the pew that are voting for, you know, oh, they voted for Hillary and they're still mad she didn't win. And they're going to, you know, they'll do everything they can do to get rid of Trump. And I mean, Trump's a jerk. Don't get me wrong. But he's not Hillary. He's not this, other. you know, it's, it's, it's a mystery to me. Okay, so this is what's, what's going on. <laughs> just, just in the last few days. There's a Black Lives Matter movement or a protest. And by the way, we're having a protest. This is a Bible protest in case anybody asks, because it can have a hundred that way. Um, so we're protesting. We're protesting whatever you want to protest. Um, so this week there was a Black Lives Matter protest somewhere, you know, it's wherever it was. And they were doing whatever it was they were doing. They weren't actually burning anything or, you know, they were 
And I mean, they have a legitimate gripe, but that, that's neither here nor there. So a mile and something away, this young Hispanic man is in his Southern California Edison truck working, you know, working on the power lines and whatnot. And this other guy of an unnamed color said he threw him a gang sign. He threw him this sign. Now, is this a gang sign? I mean, I'm old. I don't know. It is? What does this mean? The okay sign is a gang sign. Trump was doing this? Yeah, whatever. Okay, so anyway, he calls Southern California Edison and tells them that this guy, you know, got his truck number and everything, threw him this gang sign. He was, he was bad-mouthing the Black Lives Matter protest. Well, he wasn't at the Black Lives Matter protest. He was working. So they call him in. He has to come back from his job, and they fire him on the spot. Okay, so he says, but I didn't. I did this. I was cracking my knuckles. Doesn't matter. They fired him. So then, of course, the union rep had to come in, and they had to review the whole thing. And they said, well, he probably didn't do that, and it probably wasn't related to black lives, but you're still fired. We can't have a racist working for us. So not only is he fired, he's labeled as a racist, so he's never going to get another job, right? That's the world we live in. There was this Kobe Bryant, I don't know if you've heard, you know, just another black criminal, only because we live up here and lived with him as he was doing his criminal acts. Um, they painted this big mural on the side of a building of Kobe Bryant with wings and a halo. It's so awesome. It's just touching. Well, there was a billboard in front of it. Maybe they should have painted it somewhere else. So, of course, they put up a big fight, had to rip the billboard now. I want to read you something that the Democratic Party has, in, in the last uh, month or so, they've added this to their plank. It says, whereas the religiously unaffiliated demographic represents the largest religious group within the Democratic Party, growing from 19% in 2007 to one in three today, and whereas the non-religious have often been subjected, that's what they said, to unfair bias and exclusion in American society, particularly in area of politics and policy making, where the assumptions of religiosity have long predominated. And whereas those most loudly claiming that morals, values, and patriotism must be defined by their particular religious views and have used those religious views with misplaced claims of religious liberty to justify public policy that has threatened the civil rights and civil liberties of many Americans, including but not limited to the LGBT community, women, ethnic and religious and non-religious minorities. So they went on to say, and they've done this for the last four conventions, they've tried to eliminate God from the plank. They don't want to have to say anything about God. And every time they get so much backlash, they have to put it back. Well, so now finally they've decided they are eliminating God. Not only are they eliminating God, they're jettisoning anybody who's a real Christian. Because they know they won't vote for him anyway. So they might as well just go after these people that have been, what, uh, abused because of the misplaced claims of religious liberty to justify public policy that the founding fathers wrote that has threatened the civil liberties of many Americans. These are the sinners. 
I mean, it, it's, it's crazy. Okay, we don't have time to list even a small list of all the major companies, major corporations in the United States that have caved to the Black Lives Matter movement and have taken, um, you know, taken these steps and sent money, which doesn't go to a single black person. The money they give does not go to a single black person in need. It goes straight to the Democrat National Committee. So they can elect more liberal senators and whatnot. Okay, so any time, I mean, and it's happened to me personally, anytime you post something that even smacks of the truth, it gets taken down. And then they send notes saying, oh, there was things in that uh, post that were not true to the people that, you, that read it and to you and why they took it down. They're the arbitrators of what's true and not. These people who think anybody who believes in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob needs to go, that those ideas and morals are, and values are not acceptable. Only their ideas and values and morals are, are acceptable. <laughs> exactly. Veil socialist. Okay, so this week we lost Aunt Jemima. We lost Uncle Ben. We lost Mrs. Butterworth. We lost the cream of wheat chef because now you cannot depict an actual working, honest black person. You can only depict criminals who have had the good fortune to be shot. Those are the heroes now. And they have to be, you know, like seven time felons before it even counts. All they have to do is say to, to about any of us, oh, he's a racist. You're guilty. You are guilty as charged. You could lose your job, you know, everything about it. Just because somebody said, this is like Me Too on steroids. So I'm looking at all this stuff and thinking, huh, well, this is good news. Because I know how it ends, you know, and it's not going to end that well for them. But hopefully it'll end pretty well for us. And I got this revelation, and I have no idea if this is true or not. I'm not prone to getting uh, pictures from the Lord. But I would bet you, and I don't know if there's betting in heaven, probably not, so I'll not be able to collect this. But I would bet you that the beast, you know, the guy who shows up with the mortal wound who's healed and lives again, the beast, the false prophet, um, well, the false prophet specifically, is black because of all the way they're setting this up. We cannot say anything about a black man. Anything they say is gospel, regardless of whether it lines up with scripture or not. And of course it won't, because if it did, they'd take it offline. You can't talk about the Bible. You can't talk about the truth. You can't talk about God, but you can sure talk about all their other stuff. So when you see the guy with the, with the head wound, <laughs> and I'm just betting he's black. Now, okay, I didn't get that out of, out of scripture. That was just, you know, maybe it was a bad burrito. Um, so the way this is going to work is there's a rapture of the church. Then there's three and a half years. Then the Antichrist is revealed. Then there's three and a half really bad years. Then the Lord comes back. Then there's a thousand years we rule and reign with the Lord. And then the end comes. We all go to the, well, not all. Those of us who are lucky enough to go, go to the New Jerusalem. And this world is rolled up like a scroll and burned. So this is a period of 1,007 years from beginning to end, if, if the eschatology I just said is right. So if the rapture happens at the left side of that 1,007 years, 
then there have to be some things that we should be able to look for. And of course, the disciples asked Yeshua that, and he gave them the physical ones, you know, the, the raging of the weather and the volcanoes and the earthquakes and the pestilence and all that stuff. And we can look at all those and go, yeah, yeah, I can see how that's, uh, that's kind of happening. And then through the, through the Tanakh, we've learned sort of the spiritual message of what, what, what's going to happen. But the practical part is you're going to have to see a foundation for the false prophet, right? There will be, you should be able to see it coming. And then <clears throat> hopefully there will be the rapture and then the false prophet will appear. And uh, have you guys been following the deal of the century? The um, Trump assigned Kushner, his son-in-law, the young Jewish man, whatever his name is, yeah, to uh, go over and negotiate with Netanyahu because his family is friends with the Netanyahu family. And they have this new plan called the deal of the century. And it's, it involves giving up part of Jerusalem, which is like a non-starter. That's never going to happen. But the uh, assumption is what they've gained for that is the okay to put up the temple. And if they accept, and right now it doesn't look like they're going to accept it, but if they were to accept this, a couple of things would happen. One, uh, it, they say 90 days they can have the temple standing. Well, the temple has to be there for the Antichrist. And we probably have to go before the temple uh, comes into fruition. So if this is, you know, on the horizon, that's just another of a thousand reasons why the rapture could be soon. But the other thing that would happen is scripture is pr pretty clear about if you divide God's people, I will divide you. So if, if we're involved in any way, shape or form, and we by America, in a plan that divides up Jerusalem and gives part of it to anybody, you can pretty much bet that God is going to divide up this country. There is going to be civil war. I don't know. I don't know how, you know, or what. I mean, I don't get obviously memos from the Lord on all this stuff, but I have read his word and I know what it says. And if we divide or anyone divides up Jerusalem, they will be divided. So there's a couple things you can look for. If, if we were to be divided, just do a little thought exercise. How would that happen? You know, it would have to be some sort of a civil war or some sort of a race war or something. There would have to be some event or series of events that would finally get to the point where it's unacceptable the way that it is and it has to stop. And it's not going to stop because I've heard about the enemy and I know how they operate and they're just not going to throw their hands up in the air. And they have such a significant foothold now. So just in your mind, you know, run through the things that are happening and what you might see, what you might think of to get, to cause this country to somehow become actually divided. It's pretty divided now, emotionally and, and spiritually, but what would, you, what would you expect to see that would cause this country to become physically divided, say? And you would expect to see stuff like that in your future and you look around and it's like, this is not hard to envision. You know, you've got these people who've taken over cities or parts of cities and the mayors won't do anything. The governors won't do anything. Trump doesn't actually have the authority to do it, although he thinks he does. So what do you think is going to happen? You know, I can see, cause where, where, where is Seattle? 
It's like right in the middle of malicious central. How, how long is it going to take before a bunch of redneck militia guys just go in there and clean up? Well, that's not good. I mean, it might seem like a great idea, but that won't end well because it's not just going to stop there. There's going to be all sorts of hell to pay. But, you know, and I don't know. Nobody's told me anything. I don't know. I'm just trying to imagine. Um, last week, we talked about Revelation 22.10. And it's that verse that as you read it, it says the prophecy of this book. Okay, this is in the book of Revelation. So this is the prophecy about the end times. Now it's in chapter 22. So that's the part of the book that's talking about the New Jerusalem. So that seems weird. But if it's talking about the entire prophecy of the entire book, and it says this prophecy will not be secured. It says secure not this prophecy of this book. So if the prophecy is not secured from what? Tampering? I mean, how do you secure the Bible? How do you tamper with the Bible? You ever thought of that? If, if the enemy comes and, and decides he's going to take every Bible in the country, in the world, he's going to take them and burn them, would that make any difference? Probably not, because we have the word in our heart. But think about this. There's this thing um, called, I'm getting a little ahead of myself here. Let me, let me just do this. We've read these before, but I just want to remind you. Matthew 24, 24. It says, for there shall rise false messiahs and false prophets, and they shall so, show great signs and wonders, insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. So be thinking about what it is that would be so believable that we would fall for it. Daniel chapter 12, starting in verse 1, it says, And at that time shall Michael, this be Michael the archangel, stand up, the great prince which standeth for the children of thy people. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as was never since there was a nation even to that same time. And that, uh, and that time thy people shall be delivered, every one that shall be found written in the book, which hopefully is us. And many of them shall sleep in the dust of the earth, shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And they that be wise, hopefully that's us, they that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament, and they that shall turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. But thou, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book, even until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall be increased. So it's long been understood that that verse means as you get closer to the end, knowledge of that event of the end will be increased. And it's pretty obvious why, because you're going to be seeing stuff going on. It can't be hidden. But it says it'll be sealed until, if you want to read it that way, sealed until the time of the end. Now, does that mean somewhere around now, it will be unsealed and we will learn more stuff. We'll see what's happening. I don't know. But as the end approaches, as we get closer to whatever's going to happen next, knowledge of that event will increase amongst the people of the Lord, the people that are looking for it. Um, so if, if we look at this deception to come, we should consider who are the elect that would be deceived. And this word is uh, eclectos, which means favorite or chosen. So who are the chosen people? Just saying. Thank you so much, the Jews. In Hebrew, the word is bakar, and it means to try. 
or, you know, not I'm trying to get up, but to, to try them, to, uh, to what? Test. test, thank you, test them or to select them. And I think, you know, we can all agree that job belonged to the Jews. So when we're talking about this deception, you have to ask yourself, is the deception for us or is the deception for the Jews? And I suspect, and I hope, I'm getting this right, that we will be raptured out, will be taken away like Enoch was, like Daniel was, you know, all these pictures in, in Scripture, will be taken away before we have to actually deal with that. So there's this deception coming. Um, Jeremiah 30 said, Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it. It is even the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. So it's Jacob's trouble, not Israel's trouble. It's the 70th week of Daniel, not the 70th week of Steve. It's always the Jew who's apparently, and the whole purpose of the seven years, there would be no reason to have the seven years, except it's God's grace and mercy for his people, for his chosen people, because they have missed the Messiah. They got the commandments pretty well. They know the Tanakh, they know what he said, but they missed the Messiah. And we, as I've said all, you know, for years, we got the Messiah, but we've pretty much missed the commandments. We don't read the Tanakh and we don't know his words and commands and statutes and judgments. And there are enough things, Malachi and Hosea and uh, Ezekiel 37 and all these things, where we see at the end, these things are going to have to come together. The Jews are going to embrace the Messiah and we're going to embrace the Tanakh. It has to happen. It says it in, you know, I mean, a bunch of times. It says it three times in Revelation. The remnant of the seed are those who both keep the testimony of the Messiah and keep the commandments of the Lord. And I've always sort of uh, thought in my mind, because I've never been confronted with an actual possibility of the end, that those sort of happen simultaneously. And that as Christians, and there are many Christians who are turning to the truth of the Tanakh to bolster their faith, and I would assume we could count most of you there, uh, to bolster their faith and to make the pictures clear and understand it better and all that, you know, that are following the feasts, that are more or less sticking to the dietary laws, that understand the commandments and things like that. And there are also a lot of Jews that are coming to faith in Jesus, their Jesus guy. So you see that happening. I keep thinking, well, as we approach the end, it's going to speed up. It's going to happen. And now I'm thinking, I don't think that's what's going on. I think the church is going to get raptured before the seven-year tribulation. The Jews in mass have still not found the Messiah. They're going to be left here to go through the tribulation, just like Noah was, just like the, the three children at the furnace were. They're going to have to go through it. And, and it's out of that tribulation that the Jews or some Jews will be saved. And it's like Paul said, our job is to make the Jew jealous. As, as the Gentile believers, our job is to make the Jew jealous because we actually know the Messiah. But the Jew is still looking for the Messiah. So this is a big deal, right? So think about this. If we get raptured, if this is true, if we get raptured, at the beginning of the seven years, or just as all this stuff is really heating up, then we're in the air with the Lord for seven years. What are we going to do? Take a surfboard? You know, what's going on up there? 
I would suggest that those seven years are probably going to be spent at the feet of the Lord learning about the Tanakh, learning about the things that the Jews already know. And you see this in the book of Ruth. That's the whole point of the book of Ruth. The Gentile bride um, and the kinsman redeemer, they are married. The child is given back to Naomi, the Jew, to teach. It's the same story in Genesis 24. The father sends the spirit to find a Gentile bride for the son, brings her back so that she is married to the father of the son and lives in the father's house. It's always that same story. So if we're the Gentile bride and we get raptured, there's, there are many things we need to know. And those things are contained in the Tanakh. So perhaps I've been spinning my wheels here for 30 years trying to teach this stuff because we're going to get it all at the rapture when we're sitting at the feet of the Lord. But I still think it's important, you know, to do that. Um, so then the, the whole tribulation, you know, because the temple is built and the Jews are allowed to worship and they had to give up part of Jerusalem, but they got their temple. And it's interesting. Another thing last week, the Saudis, you know, Saudi Arabia, do you remember in 67 when the six day war and the Jews cleaned house and they took the temple mount among other things. And then Moshe Dayan turns around and gives it back to the Muslims for no, I mean, why, why would you do that? And you know, the answer is obvious because it wasn't God's time yet. He didn't want the temple yet. It was, it was coming. So last week, this Mufti organization, these radical Muslims that actually run the Temple Mount, that are causing all the trouble, out of the blue, and for reasons you couldn't possibly explain other than this is the hand of the Lord, they invited the Saudis to participate in the management of the Temple Mount. Well, the Saudis are pretty moderate. I mean, the Saudi government is pretty moderate, and they're sort of friendly with Israel. And this is just the weirdest thing. How could that, why, you know, it, it doesn't even make sense outside of, huh, that's got to be the hand of the Lord. Because if all this is coming down and if they're going to build the temple mount, they will need some sort of moderating Arab voice there. And it, the Arabs, you know, the, the, the wafty or woofty or whoever it is that's running the temple mount, thank you, didn't have any interest in having a moderate Arab rule with him. And then all of a sudden, Saudi Arabia, that's this week, is invited to participate. So everywhere you look, I mean, if you want to look, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. Things are happening so fast, it's just crazy. Okay, so um, we were talking about um, Jeremiah. The last for that day is great, so none is like it. Time of Jacob's trouble. If we go down to verse 10, it says, Therefore... Fear thou not, O my servant Jacob, saith the Lord, neither be dismayed. O Israel, for lo, I will save thee from afar, which is kind of interesting, and the seed from the land of their captivity, and Jacob shall return and shall be in rest and be in quiet, and none shall make him afraid. Because if we're the Gentiles, if Israel, you know, if God has authority over, if the word Israel means people that are not, Jewish that God has authority over that are typically not in the land. And he's here saying, don't worry, Israel, I'm going to save you from afar. It's just interesting the way it's, it's, it's laid out. 
Okay, so we had talked about the hearts of the fathers returning to the children, the hearts of children returning to the fathers, and that's, of course, the last couple of verses of Malachi. And it happens um, in the days of Elijah, in the last days. And often I would think that the last days would refer to us, right? The last days of us before we're raptured. And that, you know, I know better than that because America has very little to do with prophecy. He's always talking about, you know, Israel is the time clock and Israel are the people. So if the last days talks about the actual last days, after the thousand and seven years and before, uh, the new Jerusalem comes down. It could be then that the hearts of the fathers turn to the children, the hearts of the children turn to the fathers. So it doesn't necessarily have to happen before the rapture. In fact, it probably doesn't happen. It's part and parcel to the seven years because many will be saved out of the tribulation. They'll be beheaded. It's not a great way to be saved. And there are a lot of people who think that the bride is us, is the church, will be the bride and those who come out of the tribulation will actually be the guests at the wedding feast. And it would be far better to be a guest in heaven than not be in heaven. But it would still be better if you were the bride. So there's obviously a lot <laughs> that we don't know. But again, you have to look at some of the pictures in Scripture. And you see this picture, almost the very first thing. You know, it's in chapter 5, I think, when they're giving all the generations of... They go from the point where Adam and Eve are walking in the cool of the afternoon with God himself in his garden of protected delight. And 10 generations later, people are so evil, everything in their mind is evil all the time, and the Lord has to destroy them. And so that progression over the course of 10 generations is a great study, and we'll probably do it if we have time before we get raptured. If not, you can get the real study from the Lord when we're there. Um, but in that process, Enoch, who's I think the seventh one from Adam, was not. He was gone, and the Lord took him. He walked with the Lord. Doesn't say, you know, he, he was just raptured. He was taken. The Lord took him. Okay. Well, that would represent the church, I would guess. And then Noah and his fam, this is three generations hence from Enoch. They were perfect in all their generations. You know, and that doesn't mean they were awesome dudes. It just meant they were not, uh, the seed had not been corrupted. <laughs> right? And so the Lord used them and took them through the tribulation. So they're on the boat with all the animals. And you know the story, it's not super fun time, but it was way more fun for them than it was for everybody else who's smashing up against the side of the boat. And, you know, but there's always this picture of the first ones are taken out and they're always taken out before. They're not taken out during the tribulation or immediately before the tribulation. They're gone. They're just, you know, they're just gone. Where are they? With the Lord. And then there's this group that go through the tribulation. Well, I'm hoping that we see or that we are, or that I'm right, and it's certainly not my original idea, that the church is those, that group, that Enoch, that Daniel. Where was Daniel when the children were in the fire? Nobody knows. No comment made. He was just away on official state business. He didn't have to do that. He was taken out ahead of time. It's the children that went through the fire. And they went through the tribulation. And of course, the Lord saved them, just like he saved Noah. But they still had to go through the tribulation. So the picture is always, 
um, that the Jews go through the tribulation and that the church is taken out before the tribulation. And that if, if you're a Gentile believer, that's, you know, that's, that's a pretty good deal. You want to be that guy. You don't want to be the guy that has to go through the tribulation and get beheaded in order to get there. But if that's what has to happen, that's what you'll do, right? So it's, it's, to me, it's always seemed like, that's eh, kind of, you know, that's kind of too easy. And it's kind of too good to be true. And now we're seeing the way the world is. And we're seeing it being set up for the false prophet. We're being set up for the beast who's going to come. And we go back to this deception. So the first deception that the Bible describes is this beast is going to come up out of the water and he's going to have a mortal head wound and he's going to live again. And then the, the Bible describes that the people who are alive will be forced to build an image to the beast and that the beast will bring it to life. That, that you know, that's pretty good. And that this guy can bring fire from heaven and he can do some amazing things. And we've read those for hundreds of years and they have been justifiably shocking, right? If you're living in the 1300s, the idea of making a straw man and then somebody bringing it to life is shocking. That somebody can call fire from heaven is shocking. That you can bring a dead man to life is shocking. But it's a physical, they could envision it. They could see it. It was a picture. And I'm thinking the way the world is today, this deception is going to have to be a lot bigger than a party trick. You know, the Pharaoh's uh, magicians were able to turn their rods into snakes. They were able to turn the water into blood. They were able to create frogs out of nothing. So what's this deception going to be? How big would it have to be? And I'm going to, I'm not, I'm not subscribing to any of these. I just want to cast them out there because they're out there. And there are people that think these are true. And Dan blew it last week when I asked uh, about the animal that lies with the lamb. And he said, the wolf. No, 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 that wasn't it. It was the stick. It was who threw the, who threw the rod down. The and you said Aaron. It's like, who even knows that? Everybody says it's Moses, right? And of course, it's Aaron. You know, I went back and checked. Cecil B. DeMille's movie thing. It was Aaron. Moses handed him the rod, but Aaron threw it. Okay. So there's these, these things, and this was the other deal. Uh, and there's, I have 176 pages of this, so don't get me started. Um, you've got the lion who lays down with the lamb, and he's led by the little child, right? Does everybody agree? That's not right. Read your Bible. This is Isaiah 11.6. Your Bible says it's the wolf that lies down with the lamb. Nobody remembers that. Nobody in the history of Christianity has ever read that. And yet every Bible says it. So, like I said, I have 176 pages of these. And I do this all the time. I'm reading something because I've always read the King James because the King James was the only version that's keyed to study. You know, I sort of had to read it. So I've always read the King James and I'm pretty familiar with it. And I'm reading something just the other day about the, the, the guy who goes away and he leaves his servants with 10 amounts of money and five amounts of money and one amount of money. Okay, what, do you remember what that amount of money was? What it was called? Okay, 
in King James, or in, yeah, King James, it was a diner or something. Dinar, yeah, whatever it was. Read it now, it doesn't say that. It says pound. Pound, the pound sterling. The guy left them with 10 pounds sterling. What? I've never read that. I've read that a hundred times over 30 years, and it's always said diner or something, some word I didn't know. That's because the Greek of that word is D-N-H-R, diner or something. So it just got transliterated into English. Well, now if you look at your Bible, it says pound, as in pound sterling. That's not right. And I go, you know, you're reading the, okay, the, I'm going to give you a, you know, a skin of wine, and I'm going to give you a, of water. Bottle? It couldn't say bottle. They didn't use bottle in the King James. They would have given him a skin of water. Okay, so you go, you can do, like I say, I've got 176 pages. You go through that stuff, and there's so many things in Scripture that that's not how we remember it. But that's the way it is in your Bible now. So this is called the Mandela effect. And it's called the Mandela effect. Does anybody know when Nelson Mandela died? You know who he is, right? Okay. You know when he died? Right. Who would care? He died in 2013. So it was a big deal. He died in 2013. And hundreds of millions, billions probably of people on earth said, that's not right. He died in like 1980. They didn't believe it. Do you remember laughing? You don't remember laughing. You remember the big wall at the end of the show? The door would open and everybody would come out and say a quick joke. And there was the Gary Wright or whatever his name was, the newscaster. And he would do it like every week. And it was just hilarious every week. He'd come out and goes, breaking news or newsflash. Generalissimo Francisco Franco is still dead. Because he died, but nobody believed it. They kept seeing him for years afterward. Everybody on earth had Francisco Franco sitting at the table. They saw him walk. You know, nobody believed it. And it was funny because you'd see him everywhere. Well, that's what they call the Mandela effect, where people honestly, I mean, hundreds of billions of people believe the same thing, but it's wrong. How does that happen? Okay, so here's the deal. We talked about the Lord being like up in the helicopter above the parade. We're sitting on, on the curb and we're watching the parade as it goes by. So all we see are the floats that are in front of us. But the Lord sees the whole thing, sees it from the beginning to the end. He's outside of our time and space. And I hope we made the case that the enemy, Satan, however you want to phrase it, is also outside time and space because he comes and goes. Remember, he said, what have you been doing? Oh, just cruising around the earth, you know, going to and fro, he says, looking at your people. So he lives in the same dimensional neighborhood as, as God. He has the ability, apparently, like the Lord does, to go ahead, see the beginning of the parade, to go back, see the end of the parade, to move around to, you know, the Lord can appear through what we think is solid objects. We've all seen the Bohr model of the atom, where the atom is 99.9% .9 nothing. So if you live in the one dimension higher than we are, if the fifth dimension are higher, you would be able just to pass through what we see as solid objects. You would be able to, time and space wouldn't have any meaning for you. You could go ahead, you could go behind, you could, and that's what the Lord does, right? So when he prophesies about things that are going to happen, 
They're not going to happen. They've already happened. They're going to happen to us because of our timeline. But it's already happened. The Lord's already seen it. He's not making a guess or saying this will probably happen. He's saying, I saw this happen. It's going to happen. Okay, did you all see Back to the Future? What? That is a theological giant of a movie. Okay, so, so Doc, who's, what's that guy's name? Christopher George or something? Just the wacky long hair. I mean, just Christopher Lloyd, yeah, great guy. He's Doc, and he's created this, this DeLorean, right? And if he can get it to 90 miles an hour with his nuclear fusion reactor or whatever it is, I can't remember. He's going to pop it into it, you know, and he has a dashboard, and you punch in the date you want to go to. Okay, so he goes back, you know, and there's three of these. So there's all these adventures of them going back and forth in time. And one of them, he get, goes back in time. Doc falls in love with Clara, the school teacher. Clara's going to die in a train accident. So Doc has to save her. So the newspapers of the day have already, because it's happened. It's an accident. School teacher Clara died in a train accident. It's terrible. It's an awful thing. So he gets, you know, anyway, he saves her because he goes back in time. Gets on the train, you know, the, I mean, it's, of course, it's a movie. So he saves her. And then the best part is, after he saves her, she's no longer dead. So everything that was printed, every picture that had been taken had to change because the history had changed, right? And so you saw the newspapers just morph into, you know, something about the carnival or something. She was no longer dead. That didn't happen. Those words couldn't be printed because it wasn't true. So this is, this is what some people, they're reading the wolf and the lamb and they say, I've, I've memorized that verse. I've memorized it for 60 years. It's yellowed in my Bible. Everything I memorize, I yellow in the Bible. I memorized it as the lamb and now my Bible says wolf. So this Mandela effect is, okay, so think about the deception. Taking all the Bibles wouldn't necessarily change anything because we have it in our heart. But what if Satan was able to go back to 1611 and change the word in the King James Bible. Get those guys to write wolf instead of lamb. Get them to write Aaron instead of Moses. 176 pages of these I have, you can look at. And then all of a sudden, we've read it one way all our lives. Believe it, the art has been written. The Catholic Church has, I can't tell you how many millions of paintings of the lion and the lamb. Big Daddy Weave sang the song, the lion and the lamb. It's not what the Bible says now. So the question is, did it change? Did Back to the Future get in his DeLorean and go back and get them to change? And that meant every book since then had to change because history was different. So there are people that believe this is true. Well, I'm not saying it's true or not. What I'm saying is, think about the deception. What would happen if the people that were left thought the Bible said something, and then the enemy said, well, that's not what the Bible says, and showed it to them? It would be devastating. When I was a, a younger man, a much younger man, I used to have the privilege of going to all three high schools in Santa Barbara, and we would do the Christian club and every week. So one week, this Catholic girl came. And she sat at our little circle, you know, we had a place. In fact, it was awesome because we sat there so often and everybody noticed. We got there one day and somebody had taken a gas can and put a pentagram in the grass right where we sit. And it was just the perfect size. So we sat on it. We sat on it every day until the grass grew back. But anyway, she joined us and we were talking about Ephesians. And I said, it's, you know, it's not by faith, it's by works. She said, no, no, that's right. It's by works, not by faith. 
I said, no. And so I showed her my Bible and she read it aloud and she read, it's by work, not by faith. So I grabbed the Bible and I looked at it and it didn't say that. I mean, she read it wrong. She was so convinced in her mind that, the, okay, so, and she still didn't believe it. She, she read several other Bibles from the other girls. Didn't matter. She would read it wrong every time. So I said, I'll bring you my Catholic Bible, my 1952 authorized Catholic Bible, and we'll read it out of that. And I, of course, didn't even look at it. I just brought it, gave it to her. She opened it up and she read it. It's by works, not by faith. <laughs> what? And I grabbed that thing. And of course, it didn't say that. It says it's by faith, not by works. And it took us 20 minutes to get her to read word by word because she was so convinced in her mind that that's what it said. Well, that's the Mandela effect. You have something in your mind and it's not always true, right? It's just what you think is true. But think about yeah, exactly. I know. I've been there, done that before. Deja vu. So there's stuff that goes on. And I'm, you know, I'm not promoting anything. I'm just saying, look, we know from scripture, there is a deception that's coming. And the deceptions they've given us thus far have been pretty carnivally. You know, I mean, who can't bring somebody to life? Who can't bring fire from heaven, right? Um, so there's going to be something that's coming that is probably that would shake our world. And that's the whole point. Whatever is coming, this deception is so great that we would even fall for it if we were here. So talk about, uh, they have, they call it transhumanism and it's leading to post-humanism. And it's, it's this idea of, you know, when I was a kid, there was a show called the Six Million Dollar Man. Anybody? Anybody? Lee Major? Yeah. And then there was this, the $6 million woman, because of course, you know, it was the 70s. He got hurt in, the, I think, in the war or something, and we're going to make him better than he was. And he's going to run at 60 miles an hour. And, okay, that's basically transhumanism, is you're taking a human and you're introducing uh, something to him, be it mechanical bits or, you know, something to make him better than he was. So the idea of these transhumans are that eventually they will be so different from humans because we can't live here forever. We got to go somewhere else, you know, don't you know, those Republicans, they're screwing up everything. They took away the EPA and they're making the swamps bad. We got to go somewhere. So we need to make ourselves better people so we can get somewhere else. And you saw this all through Star Trek, you know, the, the little mind, the bodies are long gone, but the minds, you know, got all this stuff. I mean, it's just a science fiction idea, except it's not. They're able to do it. And transhumanism is, is leading to, you know, is post-humanism. And it all fits together, not just with the mechanical bits, but now they've got, you know, nanotechnology. Maybe you've heard that. And a lot of people think it's crap. But nanotechnology for me is um, I'll be able to make the blinds work without a cord because it, you know, you can just set your toaster on the counter and it'll work. And they can do that now with your phone. And you've seen those things. Hyundai's have them. Nissan has them. You just throw your phone on the console and it charges. You don't have to plug it in. That's nanotechnology, right? Well, nanotechnology from a medical standpoint is where they get down to the cellular level and they're, you've all seen the little COVID thing, you know, or the 
on the screen. The thing looks like a, a mine, you know, it's got the little suction cups. On. Okay. So that's, that's, and they're so small. Um, what a hundred of them can go through the hole in your cloth mask. You know, they're that small. So the nano level is that small. So the new nanotechnology in medicine, um, they look at things that are that small and they can find your sickness, illness, disease, whatever it is before you ever get it because they find one of those. So you, you've got a COVID guy. We need to do something. So they give you whatever it is. And, and you know, that's the whole purpose of this nano stuff. And you combine all this nano stuff with the transhuman stuff. And now it starts playing into the uh, vaccine stuff. So now they can give you a vaccine. You know, a vaccine's just supposed to be the dead parts of whatever it is, the flu or the measles or the mumps or whatever it is, and your body will build up an immune to it. Okay, that's, you know, that maybe that works. This is different. They give you these little nano things and they go in your body with this vaccine and actually change your DNA. And they're changing it to prevent a disease, right? We'll talk to Bill Gates about that because he got cast out of India. He killed so many people and sterilized so many people and they're paralyzed. And he got cast out of Africa because his vaccines were killing so many people because that's what they do. They go in and they're designed to change your DNA so that in, in the case of those people, you couldn't have babies. The women were sterile. The men no longer had sperm and other horrible things happened. And, you know, that seemed to be the point of the vaccine, not keeping you from getting the disease. And it may have keep it, you, you know, you, maybe it did block, I don't know, but it did these other things. And it was able to do that because of this nanotechnology. It gets in there and it actually changes your DNA. So you go back to the transhuman stuff, you know, and the whole point of all this is we're going to change humans and make them better. Well, I've read that in scripture. <laughs> And it actually works pretty well. You know, we're going to shed this old tent and we're going to get a new tent. You know, that's post-humanism. It's not all this. Okay, so the shed the whole tent thing, are you guys familiar with that? No? Nobody? Okay, good. Because I couldn't find it in scripture either. Um, it's, in, it's in 2 Corinthians where we're going to shed the old tabernacle and we're going to get a new one from the Lord. We're going to go to heaven and we don't have to deal with all this you know, and stuff. And okay, so okay, there you go. Um, but I always thought it was a tent. It's not a tent. I can't find tent in scripture. So it's another one. Okay. So in what they need to do is they need to control us, right? Well, how do they control us? Because we're Americans, we don't control easy, right? Well, they have to take away your money and replace it with electronic currency because they can control that. They have to move you out of a place like this into the city. They have to make it so you can no longer barter. You can't have cash or gold or anything like that. There's all of these, you know, systems that they've been trying for hundreds of years to control the population and have had no luck in this country up to this point. But all that's coming. Everybody's talking, oh, we got to get rid of money because it, we were just talking about that because it has junk on it. It has germs and cocaine and, you know, we got to get rid of paper money. I mean, it's just sick. It makes you sick. Well, just recognize that's got nothing to do with your health or paper money. It's all about control. Um, we have to get rid of small mom and pop stores. We have to get rid of people who support themselves, who can hunt and fish and grow. And those people have got to go. And most communities, including Eagle, have made it illegal for you to catch rainwater and for you to grow your own food. 
Now, of course, nobody enforces it to this point, but it's a book. It's on the on the books. You know, it's just a matter of time before somebody does comes and does it. Um, you know, there's all these things that you see going on if you if you want to look that line up perfectly with the end. The end is coming, and by the end, I just mean uh, we're heading towards the seven-year tribulation period. And the first three and a half years of the tribulation period will be, you know, reasonably benign. Not, not much is going to happen. And then all of a sudden you're going to get the, uh, the Antichrist, if you want to call him that, who puts himself in the temple, which has now been there for probably almost three and a half years, and demands to be worshipped as God. And at that point, there are s significant instructions the Bible gives to the Jews to just drop what you're doing and flee. Don't get your coat. Don't go downstairs. Just get out of Dodge because this is bad. This is the actual beginning of the end. And where are they going to go? Jordan, probably Petra, like that. Okay, so I forgot this part. It's called a human implantable quantum dot microneedle vaccination delivery system. Got that? And the material that they put in this is, and this is legitimate, is called Lucifress, and it glows in the dark, right? And so these micro needles, and I've seen pictures of them, they're like a little, you know, the old tuberculosis, they're round sort of thing, and it's, it's a scratch, it's not really a needle. But when you, uh, you have all these micro needles inside of different uh, diameters and different depths, and they inject this Lucifress stuff in you, and so depending on the size of the diameter and the depth of the thing, it glows a different color. Well, you can read that with a, you know, a glow stick with a, yeah, a scanner of some sort. And it's interesting that the scanner doesn't work if you're closer than six feet to each other. So if you were to, if we all had it and they were to try to scan this room, they couldn't tell who's who. So they would have to wait till we left and get you more than six feet apart so they could read it. So they're telling you, oh, you've got to stay six feet apart and social distance it has nothing to do with that. It's all about the future control. Uh, and this, by the way, is Bill Gates' patent. It's called WO2020 606060. And that's the real patent number for this device. Yeah, it's a, yeah, it's a little scratch test thing. Yeah. So also right now, as we, if you are watching C-SPAN, there's a bill in the House of Representatives called HR, House of Representatives, 6666. Just a coincidence, I'm sure. It's called the Trace Act. Trace, uh, I always forget the R. What's the R? Trace, report, and contact everyone. Something like that. So the whole thing is, okay, this is what we're going to do for you because we're concerned about your health is we're going to bit a hundred billion dollars is what they've authorized to start to get people to come around. And if they find anybody who tests positive and keep in mind, 80% of the tests are false positive. They find anybody with it. Then they want to know who you talked to, where you were for the last 14 days. Then they go back and trace all those people and they uh, count them. And if, for instance, if there are four people in your home, but there's only two bathrooms, everybody has to have their own bathroom. So they have to take two of those people out of the house to a secure location where they can monitor you. So 
Yeah, Joe Biden will hire 200,000 people to do that. Okay, okay. Well, I don't care, I'm going, I know what I know. Thank you so much. No, but there is a thing, and I looked at it on my phone and I found it. There's a down in the settings, there's a COVID tracking measure. And mine was off, luckily, but you can turn it on and it will say, like, if my phone is next to your phone, you've reported COVID symptoms, it will tell me, it will pop up on my phone that I've been next to someone that has COVID. So every single phone, Google and my phone, is now. Nice. <laughs> That's why I keep that 88 Dodge. They can do all the EMFs they want. Nothing's going to happen. Thing starts every time. Okay, so there's a ton of other stuff like the, you know, maritime law, constitution, there may be, martial law, uh, anarchists. You know, we see all this stuff, the destruction of America, the bankruptcy of America, uh, the whole deep state thing. You know, when this whole started, I didn't think this was actually going to be the beginning of the end. I thought this was, uh, you know, they were testing the waters. And maybe they were, maybe they weren't. But it has gone so stupendously well for them. 70% of the people have bought into this lock, stock, and barrel and just parrot all the things the government says. I think now they're just going, going ahead. They're going through this. You know, and America has to be destroyed. And it, they've been saying that since 1906 with the progressives, the humanists back then, that we have to destroy America. We have to bankrupt it. We have to do all this stuff because we have to change everything. We have to replace, and this is, this is the Antifa website. We have to replace capitalism with something better. They don't say what, but we have to, repl we have to destroy America. Okay, now look, America has to be destroyed. Because when you read uh, about, when you read the end, this battle of uh, Gog and Magog, and the and you know it lists off Russia, Iran, Turkey, Libya, um, yeah, all these countries, you know, these Arab countries. Doesn't say Egypt and Saudi Arabia, but all these other company countries come against them, and there is no one to defend them. So right now, America is sort of locked into, whether they want to be or not, defending Israel, but they don't. And let me just read you Ezekiel 38, and this is um, starting in verse 13. This is actually part of your homework. Sheba and Dedan, which is Saudi Arabia, and the merchants of Tarshish, which is considered to be Britain, and the young lions thereof, which is, you know, the young lions of Britain would be us in Canada, Therefore shall say unto thee, and unto thee are the Magog and Gog, and all these people are attacking Israel. Art thou come to take a spoil? Hast thou gathered thy company to take a prey, to take away silver and gold, to take away cattle and goods, to take away a great spoil? They're not defending them. They're asking, oh my gosh, we don't want to get involved. That's what's going to happen. So think about how that works. If, if all these countries align, and they're already aligned, attacked Israel, what would be the set of circumstances that America would not respond? Think that through. That's what has to happen. It can be America is destroyed. It can be we've divided ourselves up. It could be that the leaders, I mean, Obama wouldn't have responded. He would have helped out. You know, and the fact that 
Trump is here is probably a monkey wrench in their plan. So I can't believe he's going to be here next time because that would, that would postpone this whole thing for another four years. And I don't really think there are four years. Okay, so the fall feasts are the next thing up, right? Fall feasts are coming, and you guys know what the fall feasts are. Rosh Hashanah, which begins September 18th, which is a Friday night, so you guys will be here. Uh, then there's Yom Kippur, the holiest day, which begins September 27th uh, and 28th. And then the Feast of Tabernacles begins October 2nd, and it goes to October 10th. So there are three things that has to happen. The rapture, the return of the Messiah, and the home going into New Jerusalem. Now, those things take a thousand and seven years. But every feast, everything that the feasts have prophesied have occurred on the very day of the feast, right? So if you have these three feasts, Rosh Hashanah, which is what? New Year's. It's a new beginning for crying out loud. Rosh Hashanah is a great day to be raptured, right? Yeah, and you've got all the trumpets playing. I mean, it's awesome. It all fits. People have thought that forever. Then Yom Kippur is the holiest day. It's the Day of Atonement. That would be a perfect day for the Lord to return seven years later. And then Tabernacles is the feast that reminds us that this place is not our home. We're going somewhere else. Well, that would be the New Jerusalem, right? And so we read the Bible, and it's sentence after sentence, and we think it's all consecutive. And it almost never is consecutive. If, if, if Rosh Hashanah represents the rapture, the new beginning, and what better new beginning would there be for us than to go to heaven with the Lord or go meet him in the clouds and be taught by him for seven years at his feet, that would be awesome. That's September 18th. That's like in, you know, 45 days or 90 days or whatever it is. And I'm not saying it's this one, but I'm saying look around the world. See what's happening. Compare it to what the Bible says. Look at what you think the deception might be. Do you see that coming? Do you really think Trump is going to continue as president? Do you, just look and see. And if you think to yourself, oh my gosh, I'm going to see the false prophet arise, you know, like in hours, well, we have to be gone before that happens. If you think the temple is going to appear on the temple mount, in 90 days, we're gone before that happens. You know, you have to put all this in perspective. And if you see all these things coming, and I kind of do, we have to be gone first. Rosh Hashanah would be an awesome day. Just saying, just saying. Okay, look, Zechariah 14, 16. Uh, it's, and it shall come to pass that everyone that is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall even go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of tabernacles. And it shall be that whoso will not come up with all the families of the earth unto Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, even upon them there shall be no rain. If the family of Egypt, which is a word for the world, go not up and come not, they will have no rain. And then there shall be plague wherewith Jehovah will smite the heathen that does not come up to the Feast of Tabernacles. Okay, the Feast of Tabernacles is this feast that reminds us that this place is not our home. This is probably going to come at the end of the thousand year reign because that's when our home comes. But it's of all the, there's seven feasts, seven feasts, seven feasts. There's only one feast that's celebrated in a thousand years and that's Tabernacles. Why? 
because it's the only one that hadn't happened yet. Okay, it all makes sense to me. Here you go. Amos chapter 8, starting in verse 11. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord God, that I will send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. And they shall wander from sea to sea and from north even to the east. And they shall run to and fro and seek the word of the Lord and shall not find it. Okay, the context of this Amos, the very first uh, sentence in Amos is, the Lord says to him, what do you see, Amos? And he says, I see a basket of summer fruit. Tabernacles is the celebration of the fall harvest, of the summer fruit harvest. So first sentence right off the bat, you can't not associate that with tabernacles. And it goes on, the rest of it goes on to talk about the inn. Well, it's at tabernacles? I'm just saying. Okay, so I've heard a pastor, uh, a Calvary Chapel pastor, actually, talking about what a tragedy this is, that the pastors are teaching sermonettes to Christianettes. Why aren't they talking about the stuff that's important? And I'll let you guess how much abuse he got for that. But it's a legitimate question. Why are they not talking about the things that are important? Do you know any church that's talking about the end? the rapture, the things to come. Let's get ready. What would you do if it's happening? What should you do? Be thinking about, you know, and I, we've been thinking about, I'm sure everybody has stuff. You know, we have something somewhere. You know, we have a hidden safe. Don't tell that to anybody. We have a hidden safe that nobody will ever find. And it has, you know, stuff in it. Well, we're leaving. We're going to be raptured. I don't need that stuff anymore. Everybody I know is going to be raptured. I can't leave it to somebody. So we've been discussing, well, what should we do with it? And we both got the same name about the same time. And so it's like, okay, this is what we should do. I know this guy's not going to be saved, but we just love him to death. <laughs> you know, and he's not, he's not going to hear the word. But if I tell him, look, if suddenly, you know, us and like, you know, 100 million of our closest friends just disappear from earth, this is what I want you to do. You know my garage code? Go in my garage, and on the back of this, this thing, I'm going to hot glue an envelope. I want you to go there and rip that envelope off and read it because it will be good for you. And it'll have where the safe is and how to get in in the combo, and he can have everything in the safe, which will include where we went and why we went there and why he's not there and why he's getting all this money and gold and guns. And hopefully, it will be real to him because these people will be gone. It's not real to him now. He doesn't get it. He's just another, you know, he's a great guy, but he doesn't get it. But maybe he will get it. When we were young, one of our, I think it was one of our elders or elders' fathers or something, they had contacted an Orthodox Jewish lawyer because all their family was saved. And so when they were raptured, the lawyer was to take all of their assets and publish these pre-written things in every newspaper he could for as long as the money would last as to where all these people went. You know, we all have stuff and we all have the ability, even after we're gone, to witness to people. While we're here, we should be witnessing the truth and talking to them and at least priming the pump because the day is coming and I think it may be coming soon, when all these people are going to disappear and the world is going to say, oh yeah, we've had to take them to a re-education camp or, you know, they left us here for this crappy planet. They went somewhere good. Whatever it's going to be, it'll be a lie. 
And it would be nice if we would tell the people ahead of time, look, this is going to happen. They won't believe us. They'll laugh at us. They'll think we're fools. And then it'll happen. And they'll be desperate to find out what just happened. And there will be some people I can leave information to, and there will be some benefit to them. You know, and we, we all have people that we know and interact with and, you know, coworkers, family, maybe, you know, whatever it is. We, a friend of ours was here last night and he said, my son is saved, but he's not going to be raptured. And, you know, I don't know, I don't, you know, I don't know what that means exactly, but he's, he's already told his son, Hey, when we go, I want you to come do this, 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 and this, you know, and you'll find stuff because he doesn't think he's going to go. But maybe if the kid comes and finds that stuff and realizes everybody's gone, maybe then it'll be real to him. You know, so the Lord will have stuff for each of us. He's going to put stuff in each of our hearts and each of our lives and each of our minds. And that's what I mean about this. This is coming. And it does it matter? Mike 2 says, it doesn't matter. I'm going anyway. Mike 1 says, this is surreal. What should I do? You know, we have one last opportunity to minister, to witness, to tell. And most people don't want to hear it. Most Christians don't want to hear it. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't say it. And you should make whatever, I mean, I'm saying, the Lord will tell you what to do. But if I had to give you any advice, I would say, just think about you actually being raptured. What would you do? I mean, what, what, what's the final ministerial thing you can do after you're gone? To whom? You know, and just think about the stuff. And of course, as we live our lives and talk with our friends and neighbors and coworkers, and it never hurts to throw in, oh, yeah, you know what? September 18th, we might be gone. And just get the conversation rolling, right? So don't just sit there and think, oh, I'm going. It doesn't matter. Unless that's what the Lord tells you to do. I don't know. But anyway, uh, homework. Homework. I would like you to read, and I notice I didn't even ask you if you guys did the homework from last week. I don't want to know. Jeremiah chapter 30, Ezekiel chapter 38, and Amos chapter 8. And we've read a little bit from each one of those. So if you read the whole chapter, you'll get the fuller picture. And, you know, Ezekiel 38 is about this last battle. I mean, you guys probably all know that. Jeremiah 30 is just, well, I mean, they're all awesome. Amos 8 is, but it's all about the end. And it maybe will give us a little, you know, a little better stuff. So anyway, there you go. Okay. Okay.